Welcome to the Cheryl Broderson Podcast, encouraging and equipping you through the study of God's Word. This is a podcast taken from the Joyful Life Bible Study at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. I love cooking. It's one of the things I love to do. But my favorite recipes tend to be the most simple recipes. I'm always looking at those three-ingredient recipes. But have you ever noticed sometimes when you go online, the three ingredients, like the one ingredient is like 12 ingredients. You're like, wait, that's not one ingredient. That's like 12. Yes, but it's only one step. But I love simple recipes. I love making stock at the beginning of the week. And for those of you who don't cook, stock is a type of broth that you make using like a chicken bone or beef bone and onions and olive oil and celery and some thyme and some carrots. And then you use it for every sauce during the week. And that's what I like to do. And it's just so easy. It's just so easy. Another thing I like is um, lemon cake. I've got the best recipe for lemon sponge cake. I made it up, but it works really, really well. And it's super simple. I mean, I could be the Rachel Ray of Christian cooking. Another thing I like is my favorite bread recipe in my bread maker. Now, I have to say, passed down to me from my grandmother through my father is the famous Smith cinnamon roll recipe. And I've had people ask for it, but it is the most complicated temperamental recipe you have ever used in your life. I'm almost embarrassed because I think people are going to think I sabotaged them by giving them this recipe. So you have to just, you know, it's even, you know, not worked with me sometimes. So I don't like to give that recipe out only because it's so, so complicated. But being Cheryl, I found a way to make it in my bread maker. That turns out the only problem is when it rises, it goes over the side, so you have to clean out the whole bread maker afterwards. But that is not a simple recipe. But I have another whole wheat bread recipe that is so easy to make in my bread maker. I just love simple, simple recipes. I rely on these simple recipes, especially when Brian's hungry and he's just come home. It's like, what can I do that's really, really fast? In my home growing up, we had this recipe called California noodles. It's the weirdest recipe in the weird, uh, in the weird, in the weird world that we live in. <laughs> so you take noodles. This is not in my notes, so I just want you to know this is free for you. You do noodles on the side, and then you take tomato sauce, and you add a little bit of garlic and two tablespoons of chili powder in the tomato sauce. My mom made this all the time when she forgot that she had to feed a family. And then you take the tomato sauce and you put it on top of the noodles. And then you put a thing of um, cheese, you know, just the grated cheese on top. And you put it in the oven until the cheese melts. You pull it out and you throw olives on it. And it's called California noodles. Like you can make it like in 15 minutes. You wouldn't believe all the times my children feasted on California noodles growing up. But have you ever noticed that God uses simple and common ingredients, simple and common ways to accomplish his plans. We read in Ezra, Zechariah, and Haggai how God used men and women who were opposed, impoverished, oppressed, depressed, inexperienced, exiles just returning from captivity to build his temple. And speaking through Haggai, God told the people, don't worry about the silver or gold. I own it. I, I don't need silver and gold for my temple. He said, don't compare this structure with the grandeur of Solomon's temple. 
And he said to the people, just go gather some wood from the mountains and come and build. And if you will simply begin to build, I will be with you. God even promised that this simple temple that Zechariah was constructing would be more honored than the first. Why? Because this temple would have the presence of God. This temple, the Messiah would come to. This temple never had an Ark of the Covenant because the true Ark of the Covenant, Jesus Christ, would come to this temple. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus likened the kingdom of heaven to little things that have a great effect. He said the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, this tiniest of almost all the seeds, yet when it goes into the ground, it has the potential to become a great tree so that all the birds can rest in it. Now, I'm not quite sure of this, but sometimes over at Talbert Park, there's this thing that we call mustard plant, right? It takes over the whole park with its yellow blossoms. It has the potential and the propensity just to take over everything. This tiny, tiny little seed. He also, like in the kingdom of heaven, he said, it's like, it's like leaven that goes into my grandma's cinnamon roll recipe and has the ability to make the whole loaf, all seven cups of flour, rise. Just that little bit, that teaspoon and a half of yeast has the ability to affect, to have an effect on the whole loaf, all of the dough. Just such small things. This is Jesus. Now, we often think, oh, yes, Lord, your kingdom of, of God is coming to the world, and it started small, yes. But it's also the fact that the kingdom of God often starts small in our hearts. We believe and Jesus said, you believe, you received me, I'll do the rest. My presence will be with you. You know, this is God's way of doing his work. He likes to start small. Our problem is in prayer. We never have a prayer like, oh, God, start small. Do a little thing and make it a big thing. We never pray like that, right? We're like, Lord, rain down fire. Shake them up. You know, uh, ruin their life, you know, crash their car, burn their house down. You know you prayed that way before, don't you act so? Oh, Cheryl, that's so awful. No, we have all been guilty at times. You should have heard my mom's prayer. One time, there, we don't even know who they were, but they shot holes in all the windows of Calvary down when we were on Greenville and Sunflower. And man, I'll tell you, after my mom prayed, I wouldn't want to be those guys. I mean, their teeth fell out, their bones all broke, their dog died. I mean, it was bad. It was bad. In fact, I'll tell you one more story. Um, when she got in dementia and it was starting, I had to drive her to church every Sunday. And one Sunday we came to church and there were some men with placards around uh, the entrances. And so we drove up, and my mom 
rolls down the window before I can do anything. And she's like, I curse you, I curse you, I curse you in the name of Jesus. May, and she starts saying all these things. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. You know, cars are trying to get in the park, the the parking lot, and we're there while my mom finishes cursing this man with a placard, and I'm just like, ah, you know, I don't know to smile or go, yeah. You know, I, I'm not quite sure what my reaction should be. So I'm not saying do this, all right? Don't do this, but she's an example to us all. No. Um, so we drive in, and we park, and she's like, you know, come on, Cheryl. And so, you know, we come into church and everything. A week later, that man who had the placard, he came in to see my dad, made an appointment, said, could you tell your wife to take the curse off my life? Everything's been going wrong. <laughs> One more story. We used to go home from church, and there was a topless bar on 17th Street that we had to drive by every Sunday night and every um, Wednesday night. And my mom would always say, I curse you, I curse you in the name of Jesus. And she'd just go by. I'm doing that to the pot stores on Harbor Boulevard right now. So anyway, after about, you know, and she did this for like three years straight. And one Sunday night, we were coming home, and there were fire trucks and everything. The thing had burned to the ground. I'm telling you, but I'm telling you also, that's how we often pray. But you know, have you ever noticed that God likes to do things and start his work in small ways? In 1 Corinthians 1, 27, we're told, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. In Zechariah 14, one of my favorite scriptures, for who has despised the day of small things? For these seven, which is uh, the Spirit of God, and it speaks of the completeness of the Spirit of God, rejoice to see the plumb line or the beginning in the hand of Zerubbabel. God rejoices at the beginning and even with the small things. Now, when God chose to do his absolute greatest work, bringing his beloved only perfect divine son and heir into the world of man, he used the simplest, most humble, and common means. While all the notables of that time, think about it, the notables, the politicians, the religious leaders, the captains of armies, the world shakers, the agitators, the ambitious, had their eyes fixed on Rome, what Caesar doing, what are the um, movements of the Roman troops. They're looking at all these things. Imperceptibly, God chose not Jerusalem, not Rome, not, um, not Cappadocia, not some of the capitals, not Philadelphia, not some of the big cities at that time, not Corinth. He chose to do his work in one of the tiniest, most unnotable villages in Israel, in Bethlehem. In fact, in Micah 5, 2, it says, but you Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of villages in Judah, you're so insignificant, but you're the one I want to send my son to.
the one whose origins are from old, from everlasting to everlasting. The least of the cities in Judah, least in importance, least regarded. But not only that, God chose a young woman, poor, humble, virgin, engaged to a carpenter, living in Nazareth. Nazareth was such an obscure village. In fact, the descendants of David had gone there to hide during the intertestament times from um, Antiochus Epiphanes. Because Antiochus, or Antiochus, he was on a crusade to kill every descendant of David so that the claims of the Bible where a descendant of David would come and rule would be wiped out. This crusade continued with Herod. They did not want any descendants of David claiming the throne of Israel. So this campaign of persecution began. So most of the descendants of Judah fled to Alexandria, Egypt. Most of Joseph's cousins and relatives, they're all in Alexandria, Egypt, which is interesting because Alexandria became a, um, a center of biblical studies because of these descendants of David that went there to Alexandria, Egypt. But Joseph stayed in Nazareth. You know what the name Nazareth means? It's actually Nazareth. It means the branch. And they purposely named it the branch because they were the branch, the descendants of David. So this village was of no account. It was kind of the remnant of David, the least regarded of David lived in Nazareth. God chose Joseph, a carpenter who had to be convinced by an angel speaking to him in a dream to understand his part in God's plan. You okay there, Remy? You okay? Okay, good. He's just got the church keys. He's got power right now. God chose, get this, you're, you're not going to like this. God chose taxes. God chose a census. All the things we hate, right? Taxes, census, scales and a ridiculous, unjust, inconvenient decree by Caesar Augustus. Now, Caesar wanted to extract money from all those his armies were oppressing to pay his armies to oppress. Do you get that? He wanted to collect money from the oppressed so he could pay the oppressors. Does that seem unjust? Now. If that was put to a vote in California, we are going to tax you so that we can pay those who are inflicting taxes on you. And we're like, what? No, this is not going to happen. We're going to protest. We're going to march. We're going we're to do something. We're going to call down fire from heaven. We're going to curse you, <laughs> right? But yet this, these were the very means that God was going to use to get Mary and Joseph, this young couple from Nazareth, to this obscure village of Bethlehem. 
Oh, the ways of God. We want like freeways in front of us. Like, God, show me your way. And make it six lanes so I don't miss it. And God's saying, you know, it's the narrow road. Look for the narrow road. Look for the circuitous route. Then God chose a stable where animals were kept in the midst probably of a courtyard or a common house. In those days, an inn, what we think of an inn, was not like, obviously not the Hilton, not even the Hanoi Hilton. What it was more like was a house. And in those days, houses were built and you'd have gates and you would enter into the gates. There would be no windows around the outside of the house usually unless they were very much at the top. And all the windows and all the doors opened up to a courtyard. In your courtyard, usually had a vine. That's where you grew, so that way uh, robbers couldn't get your vine. You had a fig tree. You had your um, oven, so you would bake your bread. It would be in the middle of this courtyard. And you also kept your animals there, so they were safe from thieves, right? And so you would have these rooms that would look in on the courtyard. I wanted to, and I'm going to learn PowerPoint so I can give you diagrams someday, but I'm too ignorant right now. But you would curtain them off, usually, and you could open the curtains to check on your animals during the night to make sure it was safe, that nobody had broken in. And so what happened is people would rent some of those rooms out to make extra money but it was part of their house and their home. But all of a sudden, there are these descendants of David, probably even coming from Egypt because of this worldwide census, because they were of the house of David. And so here's a census. So it's overrun Jerusalem, this tiny city. All of a sudden, everyone's descending on it because they have to register. They have to stand in lines and who knows what a line looked like in those days, to appear before these tax collectors to register, name, where you live, how much you make, how much you can pay. And so when Joseph and Mary arrive, they're told, I don't have any rooms. They're all taken. But I do have a stable, the place where the animals are you can come to. You can be here in the stable. God chose a feeding trough for his son to sleep in. Mangers are endearing to us now, but only because Jesus spent his first night sleeping there. But they're feeding troughs. You know, this morning I had to, Brian's gone, so I had to, he's up in the mountains teaching at the Bible college. I had to, like, feed my dog, our dog. He's actually, he likes Brian more, but it's our dog. I had to feed him. And I, I, had his, I went to look at his dish, and I was like, oh, this is so gross. And so I had to wash it out and then put his food in, as if he cares, right? He's a dog. But, you know, troughs, where animals are kept, they're eating out of that thing. There's hay. There's often food scraps in that. It's, it's not sanitary, but it's soft. Just think of how exhausted Mary must have been to put Jesus in that feeding trough. God chose rags, not seamless cloths. 
not beautiful purple robes, to wrap and swaddle his most beloved son. God chose to send his son into the world as a vulnerable baby, vulnerable baby. Infant mortality was high in those days. About, about four out of five children died. And yet God chose not to come as a full-grown man, but to come and have the whole experience being birthed as a baby. Add to that that there's the threat of King Herod, that he's afraid that the true king of the Jews might be in Bethlehem. God chose shepherds as the recipients of his angelic message. We often dismiss this innkeeper for affording only a stable to Jesus. He has been portrayed at the door of his house, ready to send the pregnant Mary away with her husband Joseph, just so callous. But this innkeeper is actually typical of the way the kingdom is received. It is often given the lowest or least place in our attention. It's often like, I really don't have room for Jesus. I, okay, I, I can find a little room. I'll try this. You know, you're, you're sharing Jesus, and they're like, I really, I mean, I see your life. It's totally taken up with Jesus. Like, just try it. Just pray. Just ask him to come in. Your circumstances are pretty bad. You're oppressed. <laughs> you, you can't even afford your life. Why don't you just ask Jesus in? Just Try Jesus. Just give him a chance. And most people I know came to Jesus because of a desperate situation in their lives. He was their last hope. Receiving Jesus was their last resort. They reluctantly let him in. Their overly crowded life, their overly crowded house, reluctantly, or just saying, I don't have enough room. Yet look what a transforming effect and glory Jesus brought to the simple, common, and weak elements of his birth. A stable becomes idyllic. I mean, think about all our portrayals of stables. When the scene is replicated through plays or movies or nativity sets, it's so precious. It's so sweet, so kind. I have to say this, though. I'll never forget the Christmas. You know, I always set up my nativity set with a stable. And I come down the stairs, and I see that Barbie and Ninja Turtles have invaded the stable. And I was kind of upset. You know, I kind of set it off. And I said to, I think it was Kelsey, my daughter, um, do you want to tell Mom what's going on? And she said to me, they wanted to worship, too. I was like, oh, precious little girl, I love you so much. You're getting it. But, you know, we often think of it as, you know, so idyllic. But it was a place of, of uncleanness, unhygienic. But Jesus transformed it into a thing of beauty that we love, that we want to replicate in our houses. A manger, as we talked about before, a feeding trough for animals, is now seen as the precious crib of the king of kings. One year I decided we're, you know how um, Emily Barnes, some of you know that name, and she had all these like great ideas for how to 
help your children to capture the meaning of Christmas. So I thought, you know what? I've got an idea. I've got my own creativity. Our family, we are going to build a manger for Jesus. We are going to show that there is room in our house for Jesus. So I went to Home Depot. I had them, you know, cut the wood just the right size. I bought nails. I bought a hammer. I came home and I said, all of you come out to the front yard. We are building a place for Jesus, and our neighbors are going to see us build it. And if your friends want to come and hammer in, they can too. And I remember, okay, Kristen, you get to put the first nail in. And she was like, she's a teenager. Do I have to? Is this another one of your ideas? Kristen, we're doing this for Jesus. She's like, And then Char comes up to the manger. He's like, can I leave now? It's like, no, you have to do two. <laughs> can I leave now? Three. You know, then it's Kelsey's turn, and she's like, oh, the hammer is so heavy. The nail is sharp. Oh, Daddy, help me. And then Brayden's like, He's like four, so he's hammering everything else but the nail and the manger, you know? Our car is showing marks of the hammer. It's like, great. And right then, our assistant pastor showed up. He had come to ask Brian a question. And, I, and he said, what are you doing? I said, we're trying to build a manger. And he goes, oh, Brian, let's build it. So they built it. So we had a manger every year that was almost built by our children. You know those little gimmicks that you try? They don't always work out. I thought this was like the best plan. But you know, I wanted to build a manger, even though it's a feeding trough, because it's beautiful to me, because that's the place that my Jesus, my Savior, my King chose as his first place to sleep. He brought it glory. He transformed it. So we don't think of it like a dog dish. We think of it in terms of, oh, a manger, so precious. God chose rags to swaddle his most beloved son in. God chose to send his son into the world again as a vulnerable baby. He chose shepherds as the recipients of his angelic message. And now shepherds become precious to us. Mary is forever beloved and honored. Joseph is revered for his obedience and care for God's son. Shepherds, again, who were the lowest rung of society, they were often criminals hiding. And remember, shepherds smelled like unbathed men who hung out in fields with animals. I mean, seriously, I made my sisters-in-law have to look through the window after I brought Kristen home from the hospital. They'd never quite gotten over it. It's like, no, no germs in here. I don't know how hygienic you are. Just look through the window and you can see your new little niece, your brother's first child, but look through the window. You know, I've apologized so many times till I'm like blue in the face. I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. It was those classes I took at the hospital. They made me so afraid. And you know, I remember I told my uh, mom, like, mom, just look through the window. My mom said, I'm not having any of that. She came right in the house. And then she opened the door and said, come on, Chuck. And then she invited all my family in. You're not doing this, Cheryl. I will not let you become legalistic. So there you are. 
But shepherds, again, smelled like unbathed men who hung out with animals in fields. Can you imagine? I think that Mary and Joseph are there with the baby, and Joseph says, Mary, do you smell that? She's like, oh my, are those shepherds? They smelled like the homeless, because guess what? They were homeless, (laughs) and they were hanging out with sheep. And while attention, as we said earlier, is focused in a whole other direction, the Son of God entered the world, heralded only by the heavenly host of God, unnoticed by the notables of that time, unnoticed by the bulk of humanity. Yet it is Jesus, in his weakest, in his most vulnerable state, who came in to the world, into Bethlehem, into a stable, laid in a manger, and brought to that place, to this world, the transforming glory of God. This is the way of Jesus. He enters into the humble heart. He does not care about how that heart or life is regarded by the world. He doesn't care that it's a rejected life, it's a pained life, it's an oppressed life, it's a poor life, it's a meager life. Jesus chooses the despised, the rejected, the neglected, the weak. He is willing to enter into our hearts even when we have offered him the barest quarter, the most humble accommodations that we have. He says, good enough. Just let me in. Remember, he stands at the door, whatever the door looks like, and he knocks. It's interesting because someone said there's a painting. Um, In fact, our friend Colin, it's in... Oxford right now on display, and it's the painting of Jesus knocking at the door. And if you look closely, the door does not have um, a handle on the outside. It can only be opened from the inside. Jesus stands at the door and he knocks, and whoever will open the door, whoever opens the door, He will come in to that door, whatever the door. He will come in, and he'll come in, and he'll just sit at the table, and he'll wait. He'll wait, but he'll bring his glory to everything. The very angels that heralded the entrance of Jesus into the world that we're told about in Luke chapter 2. We hear about them again in Luke chapter 15. And guess who's talking about them? Jesus. That's right. It was Jesus. And he said that when a sinner receives Jesus, he turns. And when it says repent, I want to show you repent. This is is repent. Okay, I'm about to repent. Repent. That's what repent means. It means we are going away from God and we turn around and we go to God. It means we've got the door closed, but we repent and we open the door. When a sinner repents, when he lets Jesus in, Jesus said that the angels of heaven rejoice. So they rejoiced over Jesus entering the world, right? 
The one angel in the glory of God shone round about, and then the whole heavens were filled with angels. And Jesus said, do you know those same angels are announcing to heaven, we've got another one. And heaven goes, yeah, we've got another one. And they said, behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Another one has received the Savior that came into Bethlehem, who is for all people. Those same angels rejoice because they know the transforming glory. They know the plans of God. Not only the plans of God to eventually take over the world and fill it with righteousness and truth and love and joy and shalom, but the plans of God for every life that lets him in, the transforming glory. Jesus comes in small, but he's going to take over. He wants authority over your whole heart. And as he takes that authority, everything Jesus touches, everything that Jesus is given, he glorifies, he transforms, he blesses. Jesus comes into our hearts by the most simple of means. Doesn't it seem so weird? You, I just prayed this prayer. I, I mean, I talked to people and said, all you have to do is you know, pray and receive Jesus. Really? That's it? Like, you know, we're kind of like Naaman. Shouldn't I like, you know, climb a mountain, pay lots of money, join the church? Nope. All you need to do is receive Jesus into your heart. Pray this prayer. Open the door. The simplest of means. He's even willing to come to the most desperate people, willing to take the lowest place. Yet even from that place among the beasts in your heart, Jesus will begin his transforming work. Jesus came into the world by the most simple, common, and weak ways, unnoticed by most. Yet to those who received him, what did he do? He transformed and he gave them the right to become the children of God. Talk about transforming glory. You were a child of this world. You were lost. But now that Jesus is in, he has claimed you for God and for his kingdom. And he has made you and transformed you into the child of God. He has come to bring his glory to your heart and to your life. Let's pray. Jesus... Right now, we receive you. We just want to make sure that we've opened the door. We want you in our hearts. We want you to bring that transforming glory, that greatness, those things that you do into our heart right now. We thank you that you have come to transform, to save, to work, to minister to take all of the things, whether taxes or oppression, injustice, and to transform them to the means of glory and goodness. Jesus, right now, and, and if this is you, just maybe raise your hands and say, Jesus, right now, I just want to give you a better place in my heart. I want you to be central stage. I want you to be on the throne of my heart. For each of you, I want you to know as we continue to pray, 
that when you gave your life to Jesus, the angels of heaven rejoiced, and they haven't stopped rejoicing, that you are now in Christ, and he is in you. Father, I pray that you would bless these, your daughters. Bless them by the spirit of Jesus living in them. Lead them into greater truth. Transform them by your power. Let us be the most loving, beautiful images of Jesus that others might ask why we're different, why we radiate, and we can say, it is Jesus in me, my hope of glory. Because of you, we pray these things. Amen.